You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Welcome very much, all and sundry, to the second episode of season four of PGAP. And guess who I'm still joined with? I'm still joined with Mark. Um, obviously, you didn't leave me after the first time. I didn't. I'm still here. And it's really good to be here and looking forward to this next episode. And guess what? We got some very good positive feedback for your co-hosting last episode. And so I look forward to more co-hosting adventures with you as this season progresses. Well, thank you so much. As long as you keep providing me with coffee, I'll keep doing it. (laughs) (laughs) That can be arranged, Um, which is one of the few things I'm not looking forward to with degrowth, the lack of caffeine plantations. I think some people will be stockpiling coffee before they stockpile food. (laughs) We've got a very special interview today with a special guest from the great southern of Western Australia. Just before we introduce our special guest for this episode, um, it might be worth just reflecting on some of the key themes that we brought up last episode. Uh, Would you like to summarise, Mark? Well, in the first episode of this season, we talked about the asbestos situation in Australia and why it is still an issue and why we still need to tackle this legacy. In fact, even more so now that a lot of the asbestos is aging. There are a lot of old materials that contain asbestos that's coming to the end of its life. It's a very pertinent and important issue, which is why we wrote an article about it. Yes, we wrote a blog article for last episode, and since then we wrote another article that, guess what, uh, has been published in Independent Australia. And I, for one, would like to give a huge, massive thanks to Independent Australia, who are so willing to publish the things that you and I write about, um, which is often not flavour of the week. That's right. So that's really good. And I really support what Independent Australia are doing and appreciate the fact that they are a valuable source of independent media in this time when so much of the media is biased especially towards growthist interests and biased against you and i Uh, this will lead to a meeting with our local member for albany a state labor member that meeting uh, based on the recommendations of the article will occur in early december and you know meeting with your mps is the ultimate feel like one is making a difference Um, but is a necessary um, step in the right direction And I've also been sharing the article far and wide with various asbestos support groups. So it's the initial point in a wider dialogue. No, it'll be an ongoing dialogue because this asbestos legacy isn't going to go away. We need to start phasing asbestos out of circulation now. It will take a long time, generations, all the more reason why we need to start now and start with the, the most aged and degraded stuff. So talking about asbestos and bringing this issue up will become part of the overall narrative but it also feeds into that bigger narrative that is to actually change our approach to planning and development that is based around creating healthy sustainable ecological communities with a diversity of housing types retrofitting our existing built stock redeveloping the built stock that isn't worth keeping and creating a new degrowth approach to planning and development to adapt to this new era that we're entering, which has to be very different to the era we're coming out of. Very well said. And I'd like to say that in the Great Southern and the Albany environs, that asbestos isn't the only thing you find. (laughs) You've also got regenerative organic wineries as well such as orange tractor which is just on the periphery of albany and right next to the link road development which is ironic and so our next guest for this episode is murray gone who with his wife pan operate on orange tractor it's been doing quite well for itself 
because it's been on the ABC. Prince Charles, now King Charles, and Camilla um, visited Orange Tractor as well. So there's always uh, a tick of approval uh, for you, especially from someone who's so vocal about the environment. Before we hear from my conversation with Murray, any thoughts that you'd like to share with our PGAP listenership? Uh, in regards to Orange Tractor itself, or more broadly, regenerative farming as a thing? Well, as you say, it's fantastic to see in the Great Southern there are a number of people who are actually putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and <laughs> or maybe I should use a better term, putting their seeds where their soil is, and oh, actually doing go. regenerative farming. Um, and we need as many people as possible to do this because this provides the knowledge and the inspiration for others to do it. So Murray is, is one of several that we know of and hopefully we'll get to interview more over time. But it's very inspiring. I've been there. It's wonderful to see it actually happening in practice. And I'm really looking forward to this interview. Thank you for that um, executive summary, Mark. And I, look, and I look very much forward to speaking with you again right after the interview with Murray Gom from Orange Tractor. Welcome back to PGAP and I'm sitting here with Murray Gom. Murray, thank you for having me over on this incredibly stormy day. Pleasure, Michael. Uh, heads up for all the listeners because it is stormy and we are recording on site. Uh, some of the wind will be picked up on this interview. Um, that's one of the ravages of climate change. <laughs> Inconvenient sound quality in, on on-site interviews as we get more extreme weather events. But we are in the benign climes of the Great Southern and very lucky to be here. And uh, Murray, firstly, could you tell us a little about yourself, your passions and what drives you? I take it that regenerative farming is one and enjoying a fine wine is another. Well, yeah, I, I grew up on a dairy farm about 20 kilometres from here and moved into Albany when I was 10. So I did a bit of farming and did a little bit of country town stuff. Uh, my parents did purchase the farm that we're on now whilst we're in town. So I had a, a town farm upbringing. I mean, I really didn't have much of an idea of what I wanted to do do when I finish up with year 12 and I just studied to be a, a PE teacher because I just love playing sport and I soon realised I did not want to do that. I did some further study in public health, health promotion and I was working really in tobacco control and that gave me a fantastic insight as to how you can take down big greedy powerful corporate organisations that are doing bad things. So how to use the media, how to, how to get under the skin of politicians, those sort of things. I, I met Pam in, in Perth and we, we returned to the farm, but here we are today. I was doing these things about how can, we, how can things be a bit better. So one of the really simple things I did whilst in Albany, and at the time we were both working in, in public health and we had the property, but somehow we had time to do other things. Pam started the first farmer's market in Albany and I started the Albany Bicycle Users Group which was how can we have some more sustainable transport options because we didn't really have them. It was about 12 years ago a lot of monocultures, blue gums were being planted and they were being aerial sprayed with chemicals and farms were being lost and there was a plan to build a ring road. And I, so the problems were very apparent but mm. I'm always looking for the solution so me and another guy made a hell of a lot of noise and had this big community campaign. It was about chips on rail. Okay, the blue gums are planted. Let's get them to the port by rail. So I was using some of those skills that I'd learnt about and how can we change things at a local level. Part of my background is, is sort of looking at the landscape going, well, we can make some things better and, and how can we do that? Well, let's, let's just roll up the sleeves and, and try and change things. And just to add to that, so enjoying fine wine is not really a passion of mine. I mean, we're sitting here at Orange Tractor Wine. There's a vineyard and my job at the end of the day is to, is to sell wine and talk about it. But when people come to our tasting room, I talk, I talk more about soil microbes than the nuances of lime leaf, orange blossom and the Riesling. I enjoy wine, I enjoy 
but it's 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 not a passion. I mean, I, I have a greater passion for um, growing things and understanding the complexity of nature, reusing, upcycling, not throwing stuff away and going, well, I, I just don't need to buy another shiny thing and then throw it away because it breaks in five minutes. So I, I really like to look at things that often people have discarded and going, well, hang on, we, we can... This has still got some life. It's been well made. We can use it as something else. So, Well, I think Orange Tractor, from my observations, has been a great way to bring to the table people of slightly different passions. You know, people might enjoy wine and uh, organic as a thing that people are thinking about. Um, but in the process, hopefully, and, and certainly my experience has been got to understand some of the more intricate ins and outs but I'm curious about the history and story of Orange Tractor how it started and how it has ended up on the thinking person's tourist map of the great southern today because everyone talks about it. Our marketing is letting other people talk about us so um (laughs) which is obviously a good thing so Pam and I we moved to Albany so it was in 1993 we moved to Albany we, we were visiting my, my folks on the farm you know we'd come down and say hello and spend holidays and we obviously uh, were making noises about well wouldn't it be nice to do something on the farm I mean we were in Perth and Perth was always way too hot for me and there was freeways and traffic and even just, back in 1993 well it, it's it hasn't improved I'm no. told um, so as, as an Albany boy uh, as you mentioned, the climate's pretty pretty friendly here. So the other thing I noticed about Perth was was just this toxic urban sprawl of suburbs just being rolled rolled out, and the wheel was turning, but the hamster was dead. I'm going, look, I'm done with this. I'm not. I don't want to be part of this. This is not what I want to do. So part of that was a return to you know the farm and fresh air and space and um, a community. You actually knew people. <laughs> Um, people would say hello to you so what (laughs) yeah I mean that trust was there and I'm thinking yeah I'm not sure this would happen in the big smoke we essentially uh, were given access to eight hectares of land as part of my parents um, larger um, beef cattle farm and they said look don't wait till we fall off the perch we're really happy for you to do something my brother and sister didn't have any interest in doing something on the land so I guess they thought yeah well, okay well, let's let's cultivate this interest so we we weren't really all that sure what what we were going to plant I mean Pam's from the from Guildford near Swan Valley so I think vines were in her midst <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah we obviously did plant some so we ended up we did a two-day permaculture course which we said look let, let's do this we got um, Pam got a job in Albany and I, I did a bit later on so we made this big change and um, well we built a you know a passive solar loft house um, made out of 90% recycled materials and we're sitting here in the tasting room and it's a lot like this yeah the house we 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 didn't want to you know just a a blueprint sort of house you know a standard design from a from a builder to be dropped on a farm we really wanted yeah something that was in keeping with with a farm and yeah it was that reusing things and having something that has a has a lot of history we started looking around at what are some of the things we could plant we initially planted 12 fruit trees and then you know we've got over 200 now so (laughs) this whole idea of eating tree ripened spray free seasonal fruit was something we were acutely aware of was was a good thing for for lots of reasons (laughs) and we, we can do this we got our organic certification in 2005 um, for the vineyard and and the fruit salad orchard. We have recently dropped organic certification um, as our interest in regenerative agriculture so, um, grew. We transitioned from our public health jobs to being full-time farmers and we started off doing just tastings and sales at the cellar door. We upgraded that to having a a little cafe we thought you know look let, that that could be good good we could you know have some local cheeses and our olives and and that sort of grew into some more substantial offerings all still quite simple but we basically took the model number of the 1964 orange tractor which was the workhorse of the farm the model number was a 513r i think that probably means 51 horsepower probably and we used 513 kilometres as a radius to source the food from. Local food was, was a, you know, was something that was 
really important for us. And we're aware that there was an incredible diversity of produce that was grown down here. Uh, and Pam, with her dietitian hat on, thought, yeah, okay, a lot of this goes to Perth and then gets <laughs> taken to market and comes back down here. And all sorts of reasons why keeping it here and starting a farmer's market was a good idea. So that whole local fresh food was, was pretty important. That, that all got too big because I was, I was still working. It was full-time and then four days and then three days. I was working in cycle tourism was the last job I had and that was taking me away to the southwest and we were running, looking after a vineyard and, and running a cafe and looking after the orchard and so we had to downsize all the cafes. So we actually now just, we don't open very often. Well, we, we're open on Sundays, but people can book another day. So we really pared that back. So we mm. we started small and grew a tiny bit, mm. and we've just got uh, smaller to just to survive physically, emotionally, and financially. So the get big or get out mantra is not one that we sort of hugged and loved. We decided to to get smaller. Well, this yeah. is a good example of degrowth at work. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger doesn't always necessarily mean better and I wish I could say that to some people I know who franchised and opened up other branches of their eating establishments and that's when the problems happen. (laughs) For a while I was tempted to write off wine growing as another monoculture producing indulgence so I was like I'm not going to wine tasting that's something that (laughs) middle class people do you know but my eyes started to open during my time in the McLaren Vale where I spent last year by accident and then a friend of mine wrote an article about the regenerative wine producers of farmland who were part of the fourth wave uh, wine family over east at which really made me look at wine in a completely different way and now I'm almost obsessed with it. (laughs) Uh, So what does a vineyard need to do in order to become regenerative, carbon neutral, even carbon negative, and is it hard to do? Yeah, let's unpack those. And (laughs) and there is, a a, I I guess, a nice little transition in terms of of what we've done. So our organic certification, if, if we strip that back rather crudely to what that means, it's we're not using synthetic inputs we're not using synthetic fungicides herbicides pesticides and we're not using water soluble fertilizer because they just destroy and kill and take nature down so if you're organic you're you're on a pathway to being regenerative yeah look it's about not feeding your plants junk food because (laughs) they end up sick and need help you know you've got to bring the hospital to them that's when really you're, you're playing into the hands of the, the drug pushers from the industrial treadmill you know those people that want to sell you industrial agrochemicals because you need to you need these pesticides you need these fungicides you, you need you need to buy these and you can get locked into that system don't feed your plants junk food because the industrial treadmill once you get on it mm. it's a bit hard to get off so you can be organic or you can be what do they call it? Conventional. Um, yeah, I think conventional is a term. I know when I go to the Albany markets and there's spray-free on one side and conventional on the other. There's a choice in how you, how you tend to grow things. So as you've mentioned, you know, a, a vineyard can be a monoculture. So you've got, to wrap a, you've got to wrap diversity around it. You've got to wrap a functioning ecosystem in between it and around it. So your windbreaks, um, uh, make sure you've got some diversity there so you're, you are attracting... Um, your predators. So a lacewing will take down thrips, aphids and mealybugs, so plant something that will attract them. We ha- have started putting uh, a diverse cover crop in between our, uh, our vines, so diversity. Diversity above the ground means we have diverse root architecture, we have diverse plant exudates, we have a, a greater diversity of microbes, so we're, we're building up that capacity of that living system underground to, to recycle uh, nutrients, dead animal and plant material, and to find nutrients. We've got to sort of work with nature rather than wake up every day and go, well, what am I going to kill today? The plants are getting pests and diseases. I've got to, pl- I've got to buy more stuff. So we've got our fertiliser taxis. We've got our sheep in the vineyard. And I must admit, when I first found out that one of the things about Regen Ag is to have, to have a herbivore eat grass, I thought, hang on, this doesn't sound like a breakthrough in agriculture to me. But that was just me being having a lack of understanding. I mean, a sheep is a slasher at the front end. It is a biofermenter in the middle. It is a fertiliser distributor and a set of mini-discs. So they're providing a lot of services. So we put them in 
the vineyard and we do the holistic grazing thing as best as we can. We're making the grass, those diverse cover crops work hard. We're keeping that grass between a beer can standing up and a beer can on its side, getting into some technical technicalities here. So that's when the grass is most nutritious to the sheep and when it's pumping maximum, the maximum amount of liquid carbon underground. When the grass gets higher, it stops exudating. So, you know, we're just, just working with these systems. Obviously, we're not having to pour diesel into a tractor and run up and down and uh, compact the soil. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you've got compacted soil, no water, uh, no life, <laughs> no air. So we're at Orange Tractor. We actually don't have a tractor in the vineyard. It's just a, a huge bit of metal that um, is useful occasionally, but it does just crush the life out yeah. of our vineyard. We use just a little four-wheel drive motorbike. It's all about extending the green. We actually want we want grass growing for as long as possible because we've planted, as I mentioned, our diversity of, of grasses, including chicory and plantain. So they're tough enough to, to, to survive summer. They'll be deep-rooted. They'll be bringing up nutrients. Those leaves will die and they, they can get recycled. The sheep eat them. It's Mediterranean here, so usually the grass is dead in summer, but if we can keep plants growing... Uh, over summer, we're, we're energising that soil food web, so that soil food web is providing all those nutritional um, pest and disease services to plants. We haven't put fertiliser on for 11 years, and um, that in itself has been an interesting story because we've done a lot of soil tests, we've done a lot of PDL tests, that's the leaf stalk tests, and we've done a lot of soil biology tests. So our soil tests tell us that our soil is screaming out to be putting fertilizer on we're low in the usual suspects phosphorus potassium and a range of trace elements but then if you do a leaf leaf stalk analysis and send that off basically you're getting a report card from the plant about well uh, am I am I getting enough of what I want and our our PDL tests the plants say well we're, we're getting it we're getting our nutrition from from somewhere other than that top 100 mil of soil that you tested <laughs> yeah we, we've got a a, a massive <laughs> quantity and diversity of, of soil microbes. We've got a few re root feeding nematodes that we need to deal with, but we've got good diversity. So Regen Ag in the vineyard is not doing a soil test and ringing up your fertilizer rep and say, I want, I want the organic fertilizer. It's, it's more complex than that. So plant roots go further than 100 mil. The fungi extends those roots and is actually um, you know, extracting um, minerals from rocks. So it's looking at your plants, um, and the plants will tell you if, if they need, need something a little bit extra. Now, I do have to say that um, wine isn't the only thing that you grow here. Uh, I've had the best-tasting figs and oranges, I think, for ages here, and I do taste the difference. And I've always wondered how, without using the fertiliser, accounts for the poor West Australian soils, which aren't renowned for their abundance in phosphorus or anything really. <laughs> when I last visited, yeah, it gave me a great account of how um, my, mycelium in the soil plays a role. Did you want to touch mm. on that? Yeah, I'm really happy to touch or on mycelium. Or just touch on it, talk about it. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about <laughs> for it. For quite go, a while. <laughs> we, can, we can go and touch it later. Yeah. So, um, yeah, WA generally is, the soils are low in organic matter and low in low in you know, essential nutrients that plants need. And just in front of us, as you've mentioned, there's there's a, a diversity of fruit trees that are heaving with fruit. That's growing on what's affectionately called silver loam. It's white sand. And I'm really, really happy that we've got that well-drained soil because one, I can dig a hole if I can find a spot to plant another fruit tree. I don't have to ring up someone with some to auger a hole or a front-end loader to dig a hole through rock and clay. So drainage is important. So if avocado trees are inundated by water for 24 hours, they're dead. So, so I'm really happy with, with, with the sand, really happy. Because nature can do the heavy lifting here. Nature will condition it for us. So the way that we fertilise our, our fruit trees is just using on-farm waste. What normally happens is trees and limbs fall down and people usually get out the chainsaw, put them in a pile and strike a match and go, oh, dealt with that. Okay, carbon, carbon back up in the atmosphere after nature's carefully sequestered it for us and provided us a gift 
could be firewood, it could be... Shelter for the sheep in summer. Uh, <laughs> oh, look, we, we, you could go on forever about yeah. how useful um, plants are. By just chopping up that dead limb into, into bits I can carry and put it under the tree, to me that's just a big wood chip. If I put all that through a wood chipper, it's probably it's obviously going to take time and some fossil fuels and it might blow or wash away. So careful where you put your wood chip. Not against wood chips, I do put them down. But essentially, I'll put a lot of dead wood under trees. It's my mulch, it's my fertiliser, it's my soil conditioner, it's, it's the food for my mycelium. So if we, if we look at the trees... If uh, we get some discoloration of the leaves, we can, we can nail down any nutritional deficiency, but I can go to the soak just down here, and that's, uh, at the moment, we've got a, a, a zola, which is a floating native fern, which grows in nutrient-rich water. Obviously, the, um, the water has got some nutrient in, and it has a little bacteria that pulls the nitrogen out of the environment, a bit like, you know, rhizobia and clover. When the wind's blowing the right way, I can just get a, a crab net lined with a uh, shade cloth and scoop that out. I've got carbon, I've got nitrogen, I've got all this water, it's like a sponge. So if I just, instead of going to Bunnings and buying something wrapped in plastic, I, I've just got the same stuff here, but it's not wrapped in plastic bags. I just have to move it from A to B. So yeah. it's, it's quite simple, it's just imitating nature. So nature, things fall down, things, um, things get recycled. So that, that bit of wood, that I'm putting under a fruit tree is mainly carbon and most of that's probably going to break down and go back up into the atmosphere but those microbes in mycelium is going to drag a bit of that underground but that wood is also a complete fertiliser it's full of all these other elements it has phosphorus, potassium etc etc if I actually take that tree and take it into the middle of a paddock because I don't want to incinerate the remnant I don't want to incinerate the trees around here I'll, I'll send the carbon up. I'll have a deposit of all these of all this fertilizer in an alkaline environment. So I'm better off just to put it under the fruit trees. That's how we fertilize them. We also make sure that we, where we can, is have having living mulch underneath the fruit trees. What's better than mulch? I mean, bare soil is not good. Covering the soil, even with stones, is better than bare soil. But if we're having a living plant, that's that's pulling carbon from the from the atmosphere and feeding that soil food web so a lot of my friends and even people that have done all sorts of interesting and important sounding organic and permaculture courses say to me but don't you have to put more fertilizer and water on the fruit trees if you're growing all your salad greens and rocket and coriander and basil and all these other things under your fruit trees surely you've got to put more fertilizer on well I don't because diversity is actually making the soil more fertile. If we're getting carbon in the soil, we energise the whole system. So we've got to actually be open to dropping a lot of old farmers' tails. One is you need fertiliser. We need a little bit of fertiliser. I am going to put some um, potassium in the vineyard because we're really, really low and the leaves are saying, yeah, they're, they're a red colour, we need to put some out. So, yeah, having an open mind and just go shopping by walking around your property and seeing what um, what resources there are. This is PGAP and we're talking to Murray Gom from Orange Tractor who is working against the grain <laughs> and not following the herd in order to use two very amusing agricultural jokes. Mm. So if we're not putting on synthetic inputs and if we're getting out of the way of nature we can let nature do a lot of the, the heavy lifting. I mean nature's got billions of years of on-the-job training so they turn up every day. They want to help. They're on my side, so there's no point, you know, compacting, crushing, dousing with chemicals. So, so we have a very low, low input vineyard. The only things we're um, purchasing and putting on the vineyard is wettable sulphur. Uh, we need to spray that on the vines to uh, reduce powdery mildew, and some potassium carbonate which does the same thing. We do have a, you know, a, a sort of a, a bit of a monoculture there, so nature can't look after that. We, we've sort of imposed all these rows of vines. We're not irrigating the vines uh, because our, our carbon levels are, um, are really quite high now. We started off with our organic matter levels were at 5.7. They stayed there for quite some time. Um, 
So in the last five years, that's bumped up by 48% to 8.7%. So that's we're trying to boost our biological bank balance by getting carbon and microbes in the soil. We don't need to irrigate because with all that carbon there, um, you know, that organic carbon that humans can can store seven times the amount of its weight in water. So we can irrigate vines, but we don't. So if we did, there would be a little bit of electricity use. We have a lot of photovoltaic cells, but I'm not quite sure how the sums would work out there. So with, with our carbon accounting, it's what's what's going into the vineyard and how much we can sequester. So low inputs, um, rhizobia can pull out nitrogen from the air and supply it to our nitrogen-fixing plants, clover, and then our, our wood-wide web, our mycelium, will share that nitrogen to the vines during the growing season. So nature's got a fertiliser factory. Don't need to buy ammonium nitrate. But if you did, you get nitrous oxide, 300 times worse than CO2. So it's not doing all these damaging things. We, pl- we planted a lot. So we planted a lot of fruit trees. We planted a diverse windbreak around our grapevines and we've revegetated um, a waterway. So we, there was some funding from Landcare Australia to help farmers understand their carbon ins and outs. So our carbon dioxide and other equivalents, like nitrous oxide, we didn't have many of those, and we planted a lot of trees. And even the grapevines themselves, there's a calculation to, to work out how much carbon they're sequestering. So sheep are in the vineyard, there's, a little, there's some methane emissions. So at the end of the day, our... 20 acre property sequests absorbs six times the amount of co2 that our that our vineyard emits so that process we went through was not there was no validation or accreditation that that's a whole separate exercise so we're not carbon neutral because that's that's a whole process that we didn't have the financial resources to undergo so I, i contacted professor peter newman and said this is where we're at and he, he signed off on our, well, we've called it net zero now. We said, we're net zero now. In fact, we are carbon negative, but carbon negative sort of doesn't sound great. It sounds like we're on the wrong side of the equation. <laughs> but um, It's like degrowth. It sounds like you're losing something when actually it's really good. It is, it is like that, yeah. So, so nature's really complex, and we can let that complexity thrive. We can let nature... Uh, you know, draw carbon and store it underground. Carbon is food for microbes, but the complexity of the system will store carbon for thousands of years under the ground as well. So what we have to do is pretty simple, is, is don't buy a lot of stuff that's going to bugger up the environment. <laughs> yeah. And plant some trees. And it does feel like an oasis coming here. You know, so many of the surrounding farmlands are very cleared and it's and it's very lush here just a couple of things that I wondered and firstly does it have any impact or considerations about the consistency or or year-to-year availability of wine and how much you can grow at one point and also does it do you feel as a farmer that you're a lot happier you're not one of the you know burrowed frowed farmers toiling the land well I'm, I'm pretty pleased I haven't got an overdraft and I'm not having to sort of I don't know how it works if you're if you're growing crops you've got to you've got to sell it before you buy it and then hopefully the price doesn't go up and down and then you've got a big big bill for pesticides and you've got to buy a bigger machine and then you've got to buy the neighbor's farm so I'm pretty happy I'm we're, we're not in that situation I think that could be quite stressful I think it would be not a lot of fun to maybe have your little organic veggie garden next to your house because you want to feed your kids healthy veggies and then grow out then go out and you know arc up the boom spray and go and do that agriculture stuff um look for us we're enjoying um a lifestyle where we're where we're in nature we're surrounded by diversity uh we go to the green gym every day um we're not looking at increasing or even starting uh, our investment in whatever we've had to adapt to not having a lot of money which is really good because you just find a lot of joy in going to op shops and and um, negotiating the use of one car and who's going to take the electric dutch cargo bike and we go shopping it's okay i'm going to cook tonight so i'm going to go shopping that means you go outside and and pick some things and go okay i'll 
we're, this is what we're eating tonight. It's living like our, how our grandparents used to live. Mm. It's not trying to jump onto an airplane to say, well, I need to get away from my horrible job and reward myself by destroying someone else's environment. And I say it's living uh, a lifestyle that's rich and rewarding and surrounded by diversity and, and, and not, not getting um, seduced by the trappings of he or she who dies with the most toys wins. Which is a good way to get into uh, practice now because that's, uh, that's something that a lot more of us will have to be living like in the not very distant future at all. Mm. Um, speaking of diversity, I noticed in a recent ABC article that you're trialling tropical foods such as bananas. It's for someone from Perth listening to this, an Albany farm growing bananas, they would be a little bemused because Albany has always been seen by Perth as cold. Uh, but the reality is that it stays predominantly frost-free all year. Aside from the poor soils, is it the case that Albany has a climate that is the best of Mediterranean, the best of frost-free, and the best of not having apocalyptic summers, so that the realm of possibility of growing things is limited only by the imagination? Oh, yeah, so we, there's, a, there's a fair bit to unpack there, but let, let's, let's see if we can tackle those. The first one I'll put on the table is we did have uh, a fairly apocalyptic day last summer where it reached 43 degrees and we did have a significant number of our grapes incinerated. So I was at a monk, staying at Monkey Rock Winery that day and there was a bushfire across the roads so had to evacuate. So there was an air of apocalypse around the place. I think that might have been the same day. In We're starting to see some of these um, mm, these adverse weather events. We did get evacuated about three or four years ago from here. So when we first came here, we were not thinking bushfires, but that's something we do need to think about now. In terms of um, growing plants here that uh, bemuses people, I, I, I guess I take a fair bit of delight in telling Perth people. We have quite a few of those... Um, climate and traffic refugees that come down here in summer um, yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> for some respite yeah we are growing bananas and yeah we had bananas on our banana tree in winter actually which further bemuses them <laughs> we're also growing you know, macadamias sugarcane and sweet potato and they all grow quite happily here because as you've indicated we are relatively frost free i've counted one in the last 26 years so i think we're, we're pretty frost free however talking to uh, someone who has an avocado orchard probably 10 kilometres from here, north-east. They, they unfortunately experienced three frost events in July. This is quite an established avocado orchard. Every single avocado dropped to the ground. They, they will not have a harvest this year of any avocado. So they are not far from us. But we are a little bit closer to the coast, so if you don't have to go far inland to get frosts. And you know, Mount Barker is only 50 k's from here, and that's pretty good cherry-growing territory. So, if you're close to the coast, and we're about 10 k's from the coast, it it, it does it's make useful. a difference. Yeah. And then there's your microclimate in terms of are you sloping this way or that way? Are you capturing this cool air pooling in your property? So, yes, we can grow an incredible diversity of plants. We can't grow every banana, we can grow a cool climate banana. Uh, when the banana story hit the ABC airwaves, I was inundated, which is quite nice, with people saying, look, I've, you know, I've been growing sugarcane in Walpole for, for 20 years and I've got um, you know, vanilla growing and just the other day I swapped some galangal for um, uh, some turmeric. Those subtropical plants are fairly happy here. I mean, if you put them in a, you know, a black plastic pot with some bricks underneath and some, you know, in a warm spot, you're creating that little microclimate. So, well, Perth people just think, yeah, they they have to see it to believe it. So, I think what people don't also realise is Albany is in, is in the same latitude as Wollongong in New South Wales. So we're not as far down south in the scheme of things, you know, and Wollongong is kind of in that borderline subtropical, temperate subtropical territory, depending on where you're relative to. So Albany's seen south of Perth and therefore it's seen as cold. But 
It's certainly cooler, and that, yeah, that, that, yeah. that's a benefit. It's particularly in summer when you when you're trying to work your way through, um, you know, a week of 38 to 42 degrees. I mean, 10 degrees cooler is quite a nice place to be. Definitely, yes. I mean, the other end of the continuum for us in terms of growing plants is we can grow cherries, and I think most people know you need some chill for cherries. So we can't grow every cherry, but we have a first world problem of having way too many cherries at Christmas time. It's a low chill cherry. So cherries to bananas, that's a pretty, that's two (laughs) ends of a continuum. And we can certainly pack a lot in between. We haven't, strawberry guavas grow really well here. Um, White sapotes. um, Which is uh, probably one of my favorite fruits, yeah. I didn't realize it at the time, We, we started planting fruit trees, but we can go outside every day of the year and pick some fresh fruit off a tree. And in winter, it's, it's citrus. That's quite a nice um, situation to be, um, uh, to be dealt. Certainly, the wider world has been noticing. Um, Orange Tractor is certainly no stranger to the public eye anymore. You've been interviewed by the ABC on at least a couple of occasions. Uh, Prince, now King Charles has visited. You've also collaborated with Charles Massey, incidentally a guest of PGAP Season 3. To what extent do you believe that Orange Tractor is offering something unique and to what extent do you think you're part of the zeitgeist of the regenerative agriculture and permaculture movements which are offering beacons of hope within the agricultural sector? Yeah, I guess we're bucking the trend in terms of, I guess, accepted ways to grow things. So when people come to our tasting room, they'll hear a lot, of, a lot more about mycelium and um, the liquid carbon pathway than, than wine. So I tell them how we grow things. We do a tour called uh, the Organic and Regenerative Journey, where we, we just we walk through the diversity of plantings, just explain how things grow, and um, yeah, our journey of, be, of being organic and regenerative and how you can plant lots of things under one plant and that's your mulch and that's your fertilizer that's your diversity and I do just watch people's eyes spin a little bit because because we're, we're just saying a lot of the stuff we've been fed is crap we've been seduced you we're, mean literally and well <laughs> and philosophically we're, as well yes yeah uh, we're, we're teaching people how to grow food that doesn't cost the earth in you know in more ways than one look I was talking to a a beekeeper who's um, you know been in the game for a little while, and he is taking his bees out east of Albany, where there's some you know model industrial <laughs> uh, industrial agriculture hmm. territory, and he's saying, look, there's ten years ago if I'd go out there and mention organic or doing something differently, it, it, it's a barbecue stopper, as in you, you don't talk about that stuff. But he's going out there now, ten years later. And there is, you know, a younger generation that are taking on the farm. They are doing things differently. They're not just swallowing the same old advice. They're doing things differently. They're looking at, you know, the holistic grazing. They're looking at, okay, well, maybe we can use some organic fertiliser. Maybe we, maybe in one teaspoon of healthy soil where there's 10 billion microbes. Yeah, I can't quite comprehend that. We know that rhizobia is really good at, at pulling nitrogen out of the atmosphere. So if there's one microbe out of 10 billion that's of use, maybe there's a few others that could be helpful. <laughs> there is a younger generation saying, well, there is a different way. Look, and I don't get out to the farms. I don't talk to the farming community uh, out east of us, except when Charles Massey comes down and we all congregate. So Matthew Evans, we were lucky to have Matthew Evans here about, um, about a month ago. That sold out in three hours, mind you. We could only fit 35 people in. The next day, he was in Denmark. I mean, Denmark, what, five, seven, eight thousand people? Mm. 140 people in the town hall. In the town hall. Um, that's a lot of people. Mm. Matthew Evans said his book um, called Soil, Albany punched above its weight. You sold too many, then you should. In terms of a town, well, we're a city, sales were above what they should be in com- compared to other places. So there are reasons to be optimistic. There are people that are, um, that are open to this advice and uh, things happen slowly. Things do happen around a barbecue. It's about farmers talking to each other about maybe we could do things differently. Uh, we're trying to just be uh, uh, role models and, and trying to explain 
how you can do things and we're, we're up for experimenting and some things mightn't work. We're really open to other people coming onto our property and, and doing stuff. Yeah, we've got space where people can do things. On Thursdays, there's a couple of younger people that come out and um, they happy to help out and it's about exposing this to some of this. We just want to help the next generation. And I guess as seen on a macrocosm, the Great Southern has been observed as a more of a conservative area doing conservative agriculture and voting in conservative politicians for more of the same conservative live export. But it does sound like there are hints that that's starting to change. I get a sense that um, west of Albany, more towards Denmark in Torbay, is a bit different than between Albany and Esperance. Uh, for for example, but any further observations? Is it a generational shift of um, generations that have been brought up with permaculture, for example, um, as a thing since the has become so mainstream as a as a word? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think when we started out, organic was not on the lunatic fringe, but it was certainly sort of was certainly fairly left and biodynamic was that yeah that that was definitely out there so nowadays i don't even really see an eyebrow sort of raised too much when you mention the word organic so that's sort of become mainstream that that organic's not you know this this scary hocus pocus sort of howling at the moon sort of stuff that that, that's biodynamic (laughs) well it could could be it could be (laughs) but regen ag i've seen farmers you mentioned the word regen ag and i've seen them build a brick wall in about half a second and saying I'm done. The conversation's over. Mm. We're, we're not. We're not having a conversation about this. So, the terminology is critical, uh, and I think in certain situations, you've got to choose your words carefully. Otherwise, you shut down a conversation. And I guess to generalise, and that's not really fair, but I'm going to do it. That there is a stick in the mud generation that have done things in a certain way, and I think it's it's an attack on their ego to even mention the word regenerative agriculture because they're saying well so you're saying i've buggered things up you've said i've done it wrong i could have done things better because we're saying to them you've spent money and you've you've destroyed your natural capital you've decreased diversity you've buggered up waterways you know that money you've spent on on phosphorus you're 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 killing fish and causing algal blooms they don't want to hear that (laughs) it is don't confusing with the facts I've made up my mind and the, the, the ego is tied up into that as Massey says so and when someone wraps their identity around something um, you, you know there's older diet it's hard to change someone's diet than religion you know if, if your ego and identity are so wrapped around a concept that even when it's failing for you you're gonna, you're gonna see it to the bitter end you are if, you are going to see it to the bitter end um, I totally understand that and so I've tried to take on some challenges in terms of stopping a ring road and we, we, we did stop that for, for a while and and that takes a lot of energy and a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of resources so now it's like okay we've got a little property I can do stuff there we, we can we can try and set an example we can invite others in we can have field days so we, we can we can work with people who are motivated interested I mean somebody some have already caught the Regen Ag bus and they're away mm. Some are thinking, oh, look, maybe, maybe I need to unpack these microbes. It's working with, with those, the diehard stick in the mud, the farmers that are saying, well, this is how we do things. They're probably not, we're not going to have much of a conversation with those people. Now, I must say I find it rather symbolic, somewhere like Orange Tractor doing what it's doing and then over the road, um, they're just digging up the landscape for the ring road that you've fought hard against when I was having to do like three diversions to to get here I did wonder if there was something Freudian playing in uh, Rick Wilson's subconscious there but that musing aside Post Growth Australia podcast does raise a broader question sometimes uncomfortable questions about infinite growth and a finite planet and solutions for it and I remember you mentioning before all the suburban sprawl and roads in Perth so I just want to take your broader take on overdevelopment within a 
growth dependent economy and you know the IPAT equation in terms of human impact and it's a really open-ended question so go to town. It has been pretty jarring and disturbing to see how the landscape's been stripped and, and you know um, remnant veg has just been yeah just sort of pulverized and turned into mulch and a lot of earth being moved around and that's been yep pretty alarming I can't really stop that um, mm-hmm. I have to try and be really positive and think well once all that's done they're going to plant a diversity of native plants on land that was paddock so we are we are probably going to look at some some increased vegetation. Um, oh, there we go, silver lining. <laughs> yeah, it'll take a while. I mean, that was going to be some some Perth species, but luckily some local people said, well, hang on, we can collect seeds from local plants and it's probably a better idea to put them there. So I'm starting to feel as though I'm back in Perth because I'm getting suburbia north and south of us at the moment. So the family farm is slowly been suburbia is popping up in a... Uh, a road looking like something in Perth is next to us. So so we have looked at the farmland and we've looked at the concept of an eco-village. Uh, I mean, sadly, it could just end up as toxic urban sprawl. There is a subdivision plan on the farm and that does sicken both of us. There's a whole lot of planning regulations and that are big and huge. The Wichcliffe eco-village has managed to smash a lot of them down, so that's particularly encouraging. I think we're probably at the stage where... We need to work with some other people to go, well, let's, let's look at trying retaining some, a beef cattle farm as, as some smaller, diverse sort of um, small holdings. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's something we really would like to do. So there's some things happening around us. That there's, it's called progress. The Ring Road, we know um, a recently retired high-level manager for Main Roads who was heavily involved in the planning of the Ring Road, which started probably 15 years ago, and he said, I thought this would be built in 30 years, so strategically, do we need it? He's saying, no, we don't at the moment, but I guess state and federal politicians will match funding, and you know, we've, we've, you know, we've, got, to, we've got to stimulate the economy, and uh, we've got to get people working, because we've got all these mining royalties, so... It'll bring, bring growth and prosperity, apparently, and meanwhile, there are all these houses in Albany, rental houses, in dire need of repair and there's no one around to repair them because they're too busy building new shit. Well, yeah. And I know I'm drifting off from... Well, <laughs> we, you and I are probably not well placed to, to stop this, but um, <laughs> as I mentioned before, we can wring our hands and, and feel uncomfortable, but we're just trying to do what we can we can do on on the space that's remaining that that we own, mm. and then there we are surrounded by a green space which has. Um, we would like to look at what's going to become of that and uh, have have some impact on that, and um, yeah, maybe the roads and houses maybe they'll have to they'll have to stop at some point. And I think the wider world will impose on that because we are running out of resources. We're even running out of sand, so, you know, good sand to make windows, let alone the fuel to to bring it all around. So I take some kind of weird solace in that this game is going to come to an end quite soon and then more of us will have to be doing what you're doing, which is allowing a natural world to do what it kind of does anyway. Yeah, so I hope we're not ending on a sour note, but you mentioned between... I thought that was a good... <laughs> well, that is a, that is a good note, but... It's as positive as I get. So. You mentioned that between Albany and Denmark, there's, there's rays of sunshine. There, there is an unfortunate large number of mining exploration licences to, um, to seek out um, sand to, to build the windows that you're talking about and, and extract other resources. So there are speculators and, and people looking at feed the, the industrial monster with, with resources and they're having to look farther and wider and, well, in our case, a little bit closer. So that's, that's another challenge in terms of mining exploration licences on farms impacting on, on tourism businesses and, and the whole vibe of this community which is you know is tourism agriculture so so yeah the challenges are left right and center and and all around us but um i guess um we can just 
pick do, your battle. Pick, or pick your battle, and some of them, yeah, we may be, we may be um, not well placed. In the meantime, you know, uh, you can think about all the world's problems, but you still need to go on and chop wood, collect water, and spread mycelium. So we will continue to to be as. I was going to say sustainable with that, but no, sustainable is not good enough. Sustainable just means that it's staying the same. So we're looking at regenerating um, the space here. If I am chopping some wood, it's a tree that I did plant some time ago. So, yeah, we still do chop wood. Uh, we still do plant trees. And the mycelium does a, a, a fantastic job of spreading itself if we don't do things to, to, um, to stand in its way. So look, there was a there was a question there you had about how can people get involved. We're open on Sundays. We we're happy to take walk-ins, but we're really more into the to, to pre-booking, so people can book our different experiences, which are essentially food and wine pairings, and we also do um, the organic and regenerative journey, which is a tour, so people can can book that tour. Um, but looking ahead to the future, we, uh, we're pretty excited that um, I wrote to Dr. Christine Jones because she's my um, Regen Ag superhero. She's uh, pretty excited about coming to WA. Uh, I've been working with other stakeholders, as we call them, who are also there excited uh, about her coming. So it looks pretty likely that she'll come here in, in February. So we'll, we'll entertain her and we'll be inviting people from our local community. So I'll be working with the Torbay Catchment Group. I've, I'm a committee member there now and looking at running some Regen Ag events. So that's, that will be, that'll, that'll be fantastic. We're just looking for DPIRD and the Minister for Agriculture just to find some, some funds to put her onto an aeroplane and give her a camper van for the day. But I, I do have to say that the Honourable Alana McTiernan, the Minister for Agriculture, who does spend considerable time in Albany, is a ray of sunshine and she is very supportive of Regen Ag and that's caused um, a bit of discomfort because the, the yeah there have been a, a few sectors that are not not particularly keen on that but yeah she's been very supportive of, of what we've been doing and um, is has been lending some assistance to us in terms of getting some of these people down. We'll just look at trying to continue to experiment um, and to invite people here um, to just to kick along Regen Ag a little bit more. I mean, people can go to our website, our Instagram page, they can sign up to a blog, they can get involved in those ways. So thank you so much, Murray, and for everyone listening. Uh, next time you're in the Great Southern of WA, it's one of the more isolated parts of the world, so a little bit tricky for those living in the eastern states uh, where PGAP started, but if you're ever down here, definitely check it out. Um, and thank you so much, Murray Gom from Orange Tractor. It's been a delight. Thanks, Michael. It's um, yeah, been a, a pleasure to, to talk to you today. Listening to Postgrowth Australia podcast, we just spoke with Murray Gom from Orange Tractor, and it is a delight that it is actually possible to be able to drink wine with the full knowledge that the farm is uh, doing negative carbon. It's um, getting tipsy guilt free. The more wine you drink, the more carbon negative you are. That's what my brain tells me every Friday night. <laughs> I offset my flights by drinking lots of wine from uh, Orange Tractor. Yes, late October in Albany, there was a permaculture festival that we both went to. And um, I learnt a lot from there, uh, namely that there were um, several other farms around the Great Southern and even out east of Albany that were doing the whole regenerative thing. Um, what were a couple of highlights for Thine Self? I found the Permaculture Festival very interesting just to hear other farmers talk about what they were doing. And there was um, one farmer who talked about how they have been rewilding as well as regenerative farming. And that's exactly it. You can do both. And, and regenerative farming and rewilding 
really work well together, you know, increasing habitat, nature corridors, providing wind breaks, agroforestry. It's a great way of approaching land. It's like how much habitat can we bring back here and how much can we grow our food in a way that draws carbon into the soil. There's so much land in Australia that needs that approach taken to it. And it's exciting because every farm in Australia is an opportunity to say, where can we plant habitat? Where do we take sheep off? Where do we incorporate sheep, possibly or possibly not? It's the future and it's really important that we take a whole new approach to farming and agriculture. We have to treat farming primarily as a land management exercise and not an exercise in making profit, though I'm sure many farms will continue to make lots of profit but it does require a degrowth. It always comes back to degrowth and creating a steady state society, but farming under a steady state society will be very exciting and interesting and will be a wonderful opportunity for lots of people to get back onto the land and to also partner and work with First Nations people as well. And uh, in the not too distant future of PGAP, we'll be talking to an MMT uh, advocate who will be able to share with us um, how MMT can be part of the parcel. That's modern monetary theory, folks. Of transitioning it, so to allow people to be growing things instead of chopping them down as you're kind of obliged to in the growth-based system that we currently have. Just to wrap up, um, last episode was just before 8 Billion Day and Sustainable Population Australia, who support very kindly this podcast ran an eight billion day competition where entrants were invited to say in 100 words or less what does eight billion people mean to the planet the environment and to you um what were your opinions of the entries that spa received i was very impressed there were a lot of entries there were incredible incredible talent was on display and I'm glad I wasn't one of the judges because it would have been really tough to have actually come up with a winner and runner-up. Particularly since uh, half the entrants were actually school children. And the runner-up, Ethelie, who's uh, 10 years old and already has a collection of poetry, short stories and novels published. So uh, I remember when I saw her entry, uh, I assumed that it was an adult <laughs> and even later when I was talking to her um, about her thoughts of population her thoughts were so sophisticated and shared some insights that we don't often hear because we don't often open up the conversation of population and from her 10 year old perspective she was saying that um, population is a concern that's actually discussed among this generation's young children um, which is absolutely incredible because that's not the impression that one might necessarily ascertain from the mainstream media. So I might just hand the ball over to you, Mark, to give a summary of the media attention for uh, 8 Billion Day, which was uh, quite fascinating. Well, I was interested in looking at how The Guardian approach 8 Billion Day because that's the largest media source that I have any interest in nowadays, really. But The Guardian um, published an article which took me by surprise because they've always, I'm rightly, I might be wrong, but I've always thought that The Guardian have kind of shied away a bit from the population issue. But they did, um, they did have a, an article by John Vidal, which says um, it should not be controversial to say a population of 8 billion will have a grave impact on the climate. So that was really interesting to see. Now, it doesn't surprise me, but there was obviously another article that came after that to try and balance it out, so to speak, by a guy called Danny Dawling. And his headline was, Don't panic about the birth of baby 8 billion. Before he's 65, our numbers will be in reverse. So we've got these two kind of articles that really try to contradict each other. But what Danny Dorling says is he says it's inequality, greed and waste that are the real problems of our age. And he's right. The population issue only becomes an issue when you play it off against other issues like, like greed 
and waste and inequality. But most people like in the environment movement who do see population as an issue don't try and play it off against all of these other issues. They say it's an integral component of our overall approach that we need to be taking. And the irony is, is that Danny Dawling in his article says that inequality is an issue as if that's sort of opposite to the population issue. But really, if we tackle inequality at a global level, fertility rates start to come down. So for me, it's frustrating to see this kind of cognitive dissonance on both sides, both kind of arguing about whether or not population is a thing, rather than people just agreeing, well, 50% of all pregnancies worldwide continue to be unplanned. There's still a lot that can be done to empower people to have smaller families. And there are a lot of benefits to that, both inside and outside of the environment narrative. And another article in The Guardian came out around the same time that said there is the rebirth of pronatalism is a problem. And it says the global population reached 8 billion this week, but authoritarian governments are rolling back rights as they try to boost their population. So my concern is as well, is that the narrative that we shouldn't talk about population at all and it's completely wrong, is feeding in to this growing narrative that's perpetuated um, in, in the global north by people like Elon Musk and Jordan Peterson that somehow stabilising and declining populations are a bad thing. And then in other countries in the world, there is this belief that because we have to keep growing GDP and because we have ageing populations, we've somehow got to do everything we can to grow the population. So for me, it really is an issue. Let's, let's just take a balanced approach to this and look at how we can tackle the population issue in a way that doesn't play into pronatalism, that doesn't distract us from consumption in the North and all of those issues, and how we can just accept the fact that it can be integrated into our narrative in a way that doesn't feed in to those pro-growth, pro-natalist narratives. And uh, down the track on PGAP, we'll be talking to some on-the-ground um, family planning organisations who work in Colombia and Nepal, who can give us a little bit of a, a dose of reality that I believe is more closer to your perspective than um, perhaps uh, <laughs> Jordan Peterson's perspective. Um, that makes me happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> My job is done. I'll go now. <laughs> Hopefully some of our listeners uh, will be relieved too. Speaking of listeners, um, you're one. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And because we don't have the backing of the Murdoch Empire behind us, word of mouth is necessary for this critical message to circulate. Um, so share far and wide with your families, friends, networks, and even your bitter enemies. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining with us again. Um, see you next time, if Thank you're willing. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to more of your coffee. <laughs>